Hey, you're listening to the Canadian Asian Missional Podcast, and today is episode 81. We're continuing our series on women in leadership, and this is part two of our conversation with Marion Taylor. If you haven't listened to the first part, go back and check that out before listening to this conversation, as this will be a direct continuation of our last discussion. Today, we're going to be talking about how history helps us to re-elevate and unsilence women, and how we're able to apply those lessons to today. Let's do this! Some of these women have a lot to say about important issues that continue to be debated. And this, I think, is the other issue for me is that actually made me angry when I started to find these women. So Mary Estelle in 1700 wrote a book, and she's not the first, but she was writing about the verses in 1 Corinthians that silence women, right? And she said, wait a minute, Paul mustn't mean all women in every period, in every culture must keep silent. Because Paul himself, in at the end of Romans, has all these lists of women that are involved in ministry. And I thought, this is 1700. What if the church had recognized the truth of reading Corinthians as an occasional letter? We would be in a very different position. But she's not the first to do this. Katerina Zell. Zell was born in 1498 to 1562, right? Long time ago. She says, in a letter to the bishop, a Catholic bishop, she said, Paul says that women should keep silent, 1 Corinthians 14. I answer, do you not know, however, that Paul also says in Galatians 3.28, in Christ there is neither man nor woman. And God in the prophet Joel says in chapter 2, I will pour out my spirit over all flesh and your sons and your daughters will prophesy. And you know also that Zechariah became dumb so that Elizabeth blessed the Virgin Mary. I thought, Mm. this is amazing, right? So she is talking to the bishop who doesn't think she should be writing at all. And she said, wait a minute, you know, we have two teachings of Paul, right? And the rule in hermeneutics is you interpret the unclear in light of the clear. And I would argue that the clear witness of scripture right from Genesis 1 is that God made man and woman and in God's image, right? Mm. And in the Old Testament, you have lots of examples of women doing exceptional things, but they weren't even viewed as exceptional. When you look at characters like Sarah, who bossed Abraham around, you think this is not patriarchy lived out in the way that some modern people talk about patriarchy. In fact, patriarchy is a 19th century word. They didn't even have that concept. One leading Old Testament scholar, Carol Myers, says patriarchy is not even a good term to describe the culture of the Old Testament. She said we need to use the word heterarchy which means many hierarchies. 
it's not just hierarchy of gender, but it's hierarchy based on age, ethnicity, roles, and all kinds of things. And so even that represents what we now call intersectionality, how, you know, Sarah is an oppressive woman to Hagar because she's the boss. She's older. She's a woman of power. And she is a very abusive woman in terms of her relationship to Hagar. So there, there are multiple hierarchies here. And so when you realize that and then you read the stories of the Old Testament, it fits better. I mean, where does Deborah fit? They, Deborah is a leader and a judge. So interpreters that think that women can't lead have a problem with Deborah. And then they would emphasize, well, she's exceptional. But God used Deborah in an amazing way, right? And even Jael, who kills Israel, I mean, she is used in the story of God, right? The murder she used was important. So I'm excited about the possibility of recovering these, like the broader understandings of scripture to show that readings of Paul saying Paul is more complex than women keep silent. Women should not teach. Look at the whole of Paul. That is not a modern feminist reading of scripture. That is a reading that Christian women and men have had for centuries, but it didn't become part of the great books, right? That's the that's the silencing of these voices. Like, why don't we have women's voices? And because we have this long-standing tradition of the great books. So who's in the great books? They're the great ministers, the priests, the leaders of the church. But women were not allowed to have those positions. So the women's writings, were, especially Protestant women's writings, were not passed on from generation to generation. They were lost. And if you read a book like Amanda's book, you realize that women who didn't know other women had interpreted the Bible before them came up with the same kind of readings over and over and over again, which is so compelling because it means that a faithful reader of scripture, a woman who was open to hear how the spirit was, you know, how she would interpret the Bible for her day came up with the same arguments that somebody 200 years before her came up with. And one of the most striking examples of that is one of the early feminist Old Testament scholars, Phyllis Tribble, talks about Genesis 2 and the creation order, right? So we have the creation of Adam and then the creation of Eve. And there are all these different arguments that are usually used to say, and so women are secondary and therefore created to be subordinate as helpers. They were created second. They were created to be a helper. But Tribble uses knows Hebrew narrative and knows that there's often a structure to a story that the beginnings and endings are important. So man is first, woman is the end. And she talks about the creation of Eve as the crown of creation, right? That's quite a beautiful image. She's not the first person. One of the medieval mystics talks about Eve as the crown of creation. The same word. Tribble didn't know that. But that's like five centuries before her. There was a tradition of women reading Genesis 2 in such a way that they were highlighting the importance of Eve 
right? And, and not a, in a secondary subordinate way, but by highlighting her creation as like, wow, you know, bone of my bones, this is my partner, which is a, a valid way of translating the Hebrew. She is a partner, you know, a mirror image, or as one 19th century scholar uh, driver said, she is my consort. I mean, it's all about the creation of a sexual partner that they can work together as a team. Yeah, so I don't think Genesis 2 is about creation order, and it's not to be a text that tells us about how women are to relate to men always in every culture as subordinate creatures in this helping role. And I think there's a lot of scholarship that has shown, you know, that the use of the term helper is all often, I think 18 times, used of God as helper. So that's not a subordinate position. God is never in that subordinate position. So it's exciting to see these long hundreds and hundreds of years of traditional interpretations that counter what has become the mainstream so that the mainstream can be very misleading. And so that student who said, well, I believe that Genesis 1 to 3 teaches that women are inferior and subordinate. That's because the church he grew up in was dependent on the great books tradition and some very negative teachings about women that were part of that tradition. But even men, there were lots of men who didn't think that was the right reading of Genesis, but that didn't become the mainstream. So we have a lot of fixing up to do about how we pass on the faith with baggage. And there's a lot of baggage, but I really believe that. You know, some of these teachings like Zell's, Zell, like how did she figure out that she had the audacity to write to a bishop, you know, saying, Bishop, you know, don't you know that Paul also said, of course he'd read that, but he didn't take that in the same way she did. So she felt the gospel empowered her. She, when she was converted, she had a call to become a fisher of people, right? And she did that. So, you know, I think these women should inspire us to say, you know, let's take off our rose-colored glasses and read the text in its ancient context, in its canonical context, read the whole story. And if you read the whole story of God, it's way more complex than the way we were probably taught you know, why don't we know them? They're hidden, they're silent, they're burned, they're not wanted. You know, if you're in a position of power, it's quite convenient to say, no, I don't want to give over that power to the women, right? So I think some men didn't, like they really didn't want women messing around with things because they assumed women were intellectually inferior and their job was to have babies and keep things going. You know, families are great, children are great, marriage is great, but there are other vocations also. And I think that's one of the issues that comes out of the Reformation is that the Reformers closed many convents and monasteries. And the convents were the one place where women were assured of a place where they could get a very good education and have a, a very interesting life doing things like translating the Bible illustrating biblical manuscripts, teaching other women and children, 
leading congregations. At the time of the Reformation, they closed that down and they said women really should be married and have children. But what about women who didn't get married, who felt called to a single life? What was the vocation for them in the church? And it took a lot, hundreds of years before like the option for women to be deacons again came open. So there is a big debate among historians as to whether the Reformation was good for women or not. And you kind of see it. It's like, wow, these women in the monasteries that were doing amazing things, they closed them. And these women are saying, well, what are we supposed to do now? Like, I'm 60 years old. Do you want me? They said, well, go and get married. And they think, like, what, what would these women who were academics do when they were shut the monasteries? And a lot of them were lost. Quite a sad story. I wanted to ask a question, Mary. Like, yes. as you're talking about, you know, how the voices of women were marginalized, you know, in the past. I'm curious, like, how you would comment about, like, our current in the 21st century and women's scholarship and especially, like, in, in the field of women interpretation. How have we either progressed or regressed or, like, what yeah. what you're observing as some of the, the, the changes that has been happening over the last two kind of centuries? Well, today, for many women, education has opened the doors to many different opportunities, right? So today, women can do PhDs and, and MDivs and like get a theological education that was not open to many women before in centuries before. In centuries before, you had to have parents who believed that women should be educated so that they could read and wealthy parents that had theological libraries that women could read. So the women who have published in previous generations tended to be educated elite women who, who had men in their lives who believed in them, fathers, husbands, brothers, clergy, right? Today, women are blessed with many more options for life and ministry and vocation and everything else. All churches are not open to accepting that, though, right? And there are big debates within the church today. You know, the complementarian, egalitarian debate is real and a hot topic, right? But I believe with Beth Barr and Christian Dumay and their important works that a fuller history will show that the way the history of the church is presented is faulty. Like, because a lot of the gospel coalition literature says, like Al Mohler wrote this piece this past summer saying, well, we have always known this, right? That we've always known, the church has always had this position on women. You know, women should be in the home and married and teach their children and men should be in the church and leaders and women shouldn't do that. Well, that's actually not true. So if we get this word out about our fuller history, and about these amazing women, you know, who did everything, including teaching, mission work, right? Then, then we have to say, well, it's not just a knee-jerk reaction to, to feminism. It's not Christian women who are becoming secular feminists and bringing that into the church. That's not what's going on, Be it, because that's not where it was going on in the time of the Reformation, it comes out of an encounter with the gospel and the freedom women felt by the new understanding of sola scriptura, scripture alone. Scripture 
give scripture to the laity, right? People can read and understand and encounter Christ and be free. And in that freedom, they can accept the call to teach, to preach, to be missionaries, to, you know, be fishers of people. That's our history, right? That's the long history that we have. Um, I mean, when Jerome was translating in Jerusalem, he had a table and the women were right there with him translating texts. That's our history. Women have been scholars. Women have been teachers, preachers. But the sad story is women take three steps forward and two steps back. In the 20th century, like already in the late 19th century, there were some amazing men, um, Moody, right? Uh, Moody and Gordon, they had Moody Bible College and Gordon's College and Seminary was later, but they, they said, we need to preach the gospel to the ends of the earth. We need women to do that too. And so they opened Bible colleges and seminaries to women because they recognized that women are part. We need women. We need women to, to share the gospel. Then in the 1910s and 20s, there was a pushback. They said there are too many women in the church. The church is, we need to remasculinize the church. And so they shut down the courses at Moody that were pastoral. Women can't be in the preaching classes anymore. Mm -hmm. And at Gordon College, they reduced the number of people that could be in the college to one third. Too many women, too many educated women, right? And that's the pushback. And there's a woman named Jessie Penn Lewis, uh, who was a Welsh evangelist and taught in England at, um, at the big revivals. And she wrote a book, she wrote many books, but at one point they said, I don't think you should be preaching at Keswick, like you shouldn't be preaching as a woman. And she said, I have a very effective ministry. People are being converted under my ministry. God has called me to do this, and I will continue to do that. So there was a pushback, right? The men are saying, I don't think women should be doing this. You're not going to be able to do it again anymore. And in one of her books, it was on spiritual warfare. After she died, they added a disclaimer to the beginning of the book that says, we don't really think you should be reading this book because a woman shouldn't really be writing on spiritual warfare. Whoa. But she's dead. So she wouldn't really have authority over you anymore. I thought, what is this? Right. That is the pushback. So that's the concern. Like women planted many churches in the U.S. in the 19th century. As the West was being pushed out, women were planters of churches. Within 20 years of women planting the church, the men took over. So you just need, you know, a bunch of men to say, oh, sorry, Paul says women shouldn't teach or preach. And they shut you down. That has happened over and over again. So even when a more open atmosphere of accepting women as equals and women as gifted and women as being legitimately called of God to various ministries. If that that is in one generation, the next generation could come down and say, actually, no. And they did that in the 80s when the Southern Baptists fired all the women who were teaching Bible. And then the women missionaries who were teaching Bible in mission context got letters saying, you need to come home and stop teaching. 
That's awful. So what did they have to say to the people in their mission? Why aren't you teaching us anymore? Well, apparently some of them kept on teaching and some of them just went home. Are we making progress? We are on some fronts, but there are major areas of pushback. It's kind of ugly, I think. And often, like some of the negative reviews of Beth Barr's book on the making of biblical womanhood that call her to task saying, you say seven or eight times that I am a historian. Well, she says I am a you know a medieval theologian and scholar because the men don't take her seriously because she's a woman. I think sometimes women aren't given credit for who they are in their ministries in some circles, but not in all circles. It's a complex history, but I have hope. <laughs> I think this will make a difference. Speaking personally, Marion, you've been a great encouragement for me, and I know that you've encouraged many women in the past and presently uh, towards answering faithfully to God's call. So I wanted to know if you had anything to say in your final remarks about how you would encourage a young woman who's thinking about ministry or thinking about further studies. Oh, I would want to say, go for it. And that there are a cloud of witnesses that have gone before you that can inspire you. Yeah, they can become your mentors and that the church needs women, right? We need women in every roles because women and men together make a great team. So, you know, men alone and women alone, that's not how we do it. We need each other to interpret scripture properly. So we need women and men working together, I think, in the church. And I think that's an ideal partnership. So, yeah, I would say go for it. And especially if you have sensed God's call, the response to God's call in the Old Testament is usually, oh, not me, God, right? Pick somebody (laughs) else. I'm too young. I can't speak, whatever, right? And then God always says, I will be with you right? I will be with you. That doesn't mean life is going to be easy, but it's a, you know, following God's call is so exciting and fulfilling. Setting it aside is not a good idea because it will, there's often people will say, well, I really felt I should go into ministry when I was 20, but my mother said, oh, you shouldn't do that. So then at age 50, they're back studying theology. I should have done this 30 years ago. So I would say, do it. God does call women and men into ministry in many kinds of ministry, but church ministry is one option and it's a very rich, rewarding life, but sometimes not easy. So you need to know, I think you really need to know that this is God calling you. And then you stand on that assurance that I am doing what I'm supposed to be doing. And that will give you confidence that when trouble comes or somebody comes and knocks on your door, as one student did think, is Wycliffe College a church or a university? If it's a church, I can't come to your class. If it's a university, I can come to your class. And I thought, really? (laughs) Right. (laughs) So you will get pushback, right? But you just need to know that, you know, God has called you to do this and to courageously do what you're called to do. Before I close off for today, I just had a very quick question, and this kind of is a follow-up from Azenia's question as well, is on the flip side, how can churches 
create more space for fostering this type of dynamic of men and women working together? Do you have any thoughts? You know, do you have any suggestions? Well, I've talked to a number of women who do work in church positions, but sadly, they're sometimes not paid as much as their male colleagues. I mean, I think that's one place that has to be addressed, right? So if you have a woman pastor and a male pastor, they actually should be paid the same and not just because you're a woman, you get paid less. And I think that happens in a number of churches, unfortunately. That's something that we need to correct, right? And I think looking for role models of couples that have done it before, or women who have had very successful ministries before. We need to know that a woman can be a lead pastor and do a good job. And there are lots of them before that have gone before. So taking the risk to hire the first woman is probably where you begin, because there's a lot of hesitancy. Oh, I don't think we can have a female pastor. But actually, most of your congregation or 60 or 70% are female, <laughs> right? It's just like, oh, I don't think we should have women doctors. Well, the majority of doctors now are female and it's okay, right? So women bring strengths to pastoral ministry that we need, right? So when you're doing pastoral counseling and women are coming to speak to a counselor, often very helpful to have a woman to speak to. Or if a woman is preaching, she may hear and read the text differently than a man. And that is part of hearing the full counsel of God. So often it's when you see a woman and realize that, oh, I guess women can do this, then you believe maybe I've been wrong. I was so astounded by you know, Bruxy Cavey's statement is a year and a half ago, they had a series on women in ministry. And he said, you know, our denomination has repented for how they've treated more than half of humanity. And I thought, wow, like I have never heard anybody say something like that. But it was a recognition that maybe we got it wrong. And Scott McKnight, who's a renowned scholar, has a similar story. Like, he, he said, I was teaching lots of students a view that I don't hold myself anymore. And I repent of that, right? And I thought, wow. So we're on a journey. All of us are on a spiritual journey. And we do change our minds on things. And we become more open on other things. And I think it's time to recognize that God does call women and men into ministry and to Take seriously what Catherine Booth said. What if we're wrong and you don't allow women to exercise the call that they have from God? Then I think from the Old Testament anyway, you would say, well, woe to you who are in positions of leadership and don't listen to God's call. And I think the church could be under that kind of condemnation too. Woe to you. You know, you need to listen to God and be open to change. Marion, thank you so much for well, today. You're welcome. For this conversation. It has been a masterclass. I feel like our minds have been blown many times over. And if you have a lineup out your door from people wanting to enroll to your next class, you know, that's not going to surprise us at all. And we just also wanted to highlight a book that you have coming out this coming February called Voices Long Silenced Women Biblical Interpreters through the centuries that you co-authored with Joy Schroeder. 
and we'd very much encourage people to pick that up. But what you have said today has been so edifying and so helpful and enlightening, and we're really grateful for you. So thank you so much for spending time with us. My pleasure. That's going to be it for our episode today. Thank you guys so much for joining us on this conversation. What did you think of what Marion was sharing today? What's been your experience of ministry, especially surrounding this episode's discussion? Did you know of all these women who are part of interpreting the Bible throughout history? We'd love to hear what you think. You could always reach us by Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or by email. Our email address is contact.campodcast at gmail.com. That's contact.campodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear what you think and what your reflections are. If you haven't done so already, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on whatever platform you listen on. That continues to help us get this conversation out there. And please also share it in person as well. Once again, you've been listening to the Canadian Asian Missional Podcast, and we hope you'll join us on this journey. See you next time.